All right, our study this morning is called Love, God's Nature and Project. And um, I feel I have to defend using that word God's nature. It's not a problem saying God's nature, but God's project. But I think it's fair to say that it's God's project and that will come out. Another way to summarize today's study would be constrained by love. We're not... um, uh, like so much that we see on our media and sometimes, unfortunately, in our pulpits, people remonstrating, saying we should love more. We're talking about a cross that achieves these things. Uh, we've talked about um, love. We talked about the cross judging the world. These are the studies that we've had up to date. We've talked about the cross uh, putting things right. We've talked about the cross making peace and uh, now uh, the cross constraining us to love. These are not potentialities, these are accomplishments. We really need to see the cross as the love of God achieving its object. And uh, that's uh, what we're about today, God's nature and project. Well, who can understand God loving the world? Got a, an article at home which uh, numbers uh, of us have loved uh, by a man called uh, Youngel, Y-U-N-G-E-L, and he talks about how difficult it is to talk about God and how difficult it is to talk about love. And um, the one, perhaps because um, God can mean so many things to different people or perhaps nothing, and of course that love can mean so many different things to people. Uh, I actually looked up love as an internet search and I got um, uh, something like places you love to live. You know, we, we very f- Love has been degenerated, if you like, uh, into so many other things that it's difficult to talk about. Um, and the cross also, of course, has become a symbol of sacrificial love as part of our culture. If somebody dies on a, on a street corner, then they'll put up a cross attached to a telegraph pole and of course uh, within the military as well it's a standard symbol of sacrificial love it's all part of our culture but it's lost its power and that's sad that love in our minds has lost its power uh, and love is also something we assume we have aren't we nice loving people um, most people I think would like to think of them there might be an old grouch that likes to be seen as miserable, but I guess most of us would like to be seen as people who go out and love other people. It's assumed to be something we have, so it's difficult for us to be real about it. We're blind to our actual condition, and it hides our need of an offering for sin. So as I was coming this morning, I thought to myself, the only way to approach this morning is to see myself as one beggar uh, telling another other beggars where to get bread. Uh, when it comes to love... All of us are out of our depth. Uh, that's changed the analogy, but <laughs> never the mind. <laughs> we need somebody else to tell us about love. More than that, we need somebody to, tell us, to show us how to love. More than that, we need someone who causes us to love. Now, that's where we are. And while we're that, where our love's got a hub and the wheel can go round, well, without the cross, we're going to be in some trouble. Now, we need to know these things uh, God loves us. He doesn't posture 
uh, the, the media and our culture is full of what I call posturing. Uh, we say things for effect, not because they are real or because we, they actually achieve any particular end. But God does not posture, nor does he experiment. By nature of the case, most of what we do is experimentation. You know, we have evidence-based medicine for our doctors here. In other words, we try it. If it doesn't work, we don't do it again. We try something different. But there's a lot of theory behind it. But do you know what I mean? It's We want things that we have to, by nature of the case, experiment. We're not God. We don't come from what's absolute. We come from what we can get our hands on. So, But God doesn't experiment. He just does what he does. And he knows what is needed and sees that it actually is done. So Christ and the apostles link God's love with the death of Christ in a number of ways. So what I've done simply here is to uh, try and remember and look up in my books to see where love and cross come together or the death of Christ come together. <coughs> and this, this is the result. <coughs> and I just put those various um, discoveries into about five headings. <coughs> so first of all, the cross shows that love is God's project before it is ours. Um, Jesus comes, uh, that is, I say, do you see how, what, do you know what I mean by we make love our project? Um, if you like, socialism, which is one of the leading philosophies of our day, is an attempt to ensure that society is loving. That is, everybody is provided for. Doesn't it sound good? Uh, but you see, it becomes our project, and that's its problem. It's the same, of course, with capitalism. We make it our project. Anything we make our project becomes our problem uh, because we're not in command. We can do what we're given to do, but we can't take charge. Um, so here it is God's project before it is ours. Jesus comes with a purpose, and before he dies, he announces, it is finished. Well, I mean, he wouldn't have been saying it's finished unless he had something he was trying to achieve, would he? Whatever I'm about, he says, it's done is an astonishing statement. Um, it's perhaps uh, astonishing too that Paul can say at the, end of, in, at the end of his life, I have run the race, I fought the fight, kept the faith. Hereafter is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which no man can take. Um, I read that to a person who was dying because I believed it was true of them. Uh, you, called by name, have run the race, fought the fight, kept the faith. Hereafter is laid up a crown of righteousness. Which uh, It's a wonderful thing that we can, uh, because of Christ, we can actually say the same ourselves. But Christ said, it is finished. It is done. So Christ in the... Uh, so, um, uh, and says it's finished. That's right. He comes so that we may have a full life. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And if we remember the old adage, it's not where I, where I breathe, but where I live, where I love, I live. It's not where I breathe, but where I love, I live. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Uh, and uh, so if Jesus says he came to give us life, well, that, that must mean that we're going to be loving, doesn't it? It must mean that everything's going to be real. Um, it must mean that he will cause us to love because it's where we love that we live. Love is a God thing. And I love that little verse in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, where it says, little children love one another because love is of God. And he who loves 
is uh, made, uh, he loves something or other, and then he says, because God is love. It's interesting, isn't it? God is love. There's only three statements like that. God is love, God is light, and God is spirit, where it actually gives you an is in between the two. Uh, so here God is love. Uh, that is, um, when you come to God, it's not one of the aspects of him. It is essentially what he is. Um, he doesn't need our loveliness or even our need. You've heard of codependency, haven't you? Where in effect, when, when somebody becomes attached to another person because they can meet their need. Uh, it can even happen with the wife of an alcoholic husband, for example. They used to talk about codependency. Uh, God, not codependent, he doesn't sort of think, oh, there's a lot of help, miserable humans down there, I'll give them a hand. Um, his love doesn't arise out of our need any more than it arises out of our loveliness. It just arises because he's God. You have to stir God up to get angry, but you don't have to stir him up to be loved. It's just, that's what he is. It's astonishing, you know, when we are so different to that ourselves, aren't we? It is a God thing. Um, imagine that, imagining that love is our nature and project is causing us to unravel personally. When I talk to a young teenager and he tells me his great need in moving from school to university is whether he'll have any friends. He's a well-placed lad, intellectually, personally and sports-wise. But that's his great... You know, what's happening when persons are frightened about who's going to love them instead of going out to love? Uh, it's because of that that I wrote the little article that's on my blog that says love is about other people. No, friendship is about other people. Friendship isn't about me. Don't ask how many friends you've got. How many likes you've got on your web page? <laughs> uh, ask whether you're a lover. Do you see how, how we've become disabled when we're looking about for a crutch instead of a thing to do? It's quite interesting. Imagining that love is our nature and project is causing us to unravel personally amongst our young people. And it's also causing us to unravel socially. Our insights shrink. They are shrinking. Our insights are shrinking until we only see what pleases us and our horizons shrink until they only, they only include people we agree with. It's happening and it's destroying uh, our well-being as a community. So we have an urgent need to be thinking about love if anybody's going to be willing to think, of course. What God does through the cross is a power that creates love. Uh, this is where we've got something that's so good and why I think it's true that uh, these are great days for the gospel. They're uncomfortable days to live, but they're great days for the gospel because the gospel speaks to our need. And we've been thinking that we don't have any needs and sometimes things have to hurt. Or as the Clavel says, you have to be under a rock before people think. Well, we're getting under a rock, aren't we? And uh, so we might think some more about where love comes from. Um, God, what God does through the cross is a power that creates love. Jesus' death constrains us to love, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5. That is, it encloses us. The actual word actually has this meaning. It encloses us on both sides and moves us from behind into what life can be. 
Somebody was asking me if I could come up with a different word from constrain. And uh, uh, you could say pressured, you know, pressured both sides and from behind. But it, whatever, it works. <laughs> and it's got to be some power, doesn't it? It's got to do some constraining to stop from just letting off your steam. You've got to be some constraining. It's got to do some pushing, doesn't it? Now, love is a great power. Let's see if we can find what it is. So the cross shows us that love is God's project before it's ours. Secondly, the cross shows love is God's priority. And what I've done here is simply notice how many times Jesus speaks about love before he dies. In the few chapters, from chapter 13 onwards, which begins with a statement, Jesus, having loved his own, which summarises the three years he'd spent with them, loved them to the end, which means he died for them. That's a summary statement of all that's to come. And then here, have a look at the other verses that follow it. Um, all these references are in John. He wants us to love one another like he does. Um, I think probably just helpful if I read these verses. I'd rather you listen to what Jesus says than what I say about it. 13.34, a new commandment. Notice not advice. Notice not pleading. We've got to love mother and the more. Well, he didn't say that. He said, a new commandment I give you. You love one another just as I have loved you. So you also are to love one another. And 14, uh, verse 24, says... Uh, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. He wants us to love him. And then 14.31, he says, I do as the Father has commanded me. He's told us, he commanded us. Now he says, I do as the Father has commanded me. And if you like, part of what God has commanded his Father is, love my sheep. And he's going to love them to the end. So he's keeping his father's commandment. I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Now, think about that. We like to think that Jesus went to the cross for us. His first reason was because he prayed the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, hallowed be your name. And if you read John 17, you'll see that's what he's got in mind. Uh, that he says, um, I pray that they may be sanctified. And with that in mind, I sanctify myself, that they may be sanctified in the truth. I'm going to have to be totally God's that's sanctified in order that they may be totally God's. That's us being sanctified. Uh, and... Uh, that's his father's goal and his father's plan and his father's exercise of action. And he's going to see it out. That's what's finished when he dies. He's been, he's been sanctified to the father and he's sanctified his people. And he's done it because that's what his father wants. He says, I'm going to the cross so that the world, this isn't some, some esoteric truth for high, highbrow theologians to think about, so that the world may be a common knowledge. There's a guy, when I wrote a song about Jesus, that's why I began it. It was he. Um, um, I, I have heard that he lived for his father. That's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about Jesus. 
I've heard that he lived for his father and for those he loved to have as brothers. That he saw their longings and their sorrows, knew the way of freedom they could follow. But can you see, he lived for his father. There's the hub. Love's got to have a, 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 a locale. It's got to have a locus. It's got to be somewhere and it's got to be God because God is love. And Jesus comes in order that that love may be the locus for our affections and our attention and our confidence. We've got to get our eyes off ourselves. We've really got to get them onto God. Like Jesus had his eye on his Father. Why does he spend so much time praying? Couldn't he get it all over in five minutes? Apparently not. He just needed to know that his Father was the centre of his life. Uh, So that's why he dies. This is his first love. He knows his father's love for him and that's how he loves us. This is where he wants us to live as well. In 15.9 he actually says, As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And the next verse, If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then 15.12 and 13 uh, he says, um, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one this than he lays down his life for his friends. See how that's been all cheapened? It's just what you do on Anzac Day. Well, it's very good to use at Anzac Day, and it might well be true of many soldiers that they willingly gave their lives for for their nation. Um, But it's got to be Christ for it to have a hub that someone lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends, if you do what I command you. And 17, um, these things I command you, that you love one another. And then he prays on the cross, 17.22, makes all that he's wanting, just all this is happening virtually hours before Jesus dies. So you can see what's on his mind? It's love, isn't it? 17.22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one. And verse 26, I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. There's your hub. He dies, so that the love that he knows from the Father, that's why he spends all night with him, because he loves him, so that the love that you have for me might be in them, and I in them. And so the cross has got a huge amount to do with love. He knows none of this will happen unless he dies. He already has told us that the greatest call on our humanity is to love God and to love one another, the greatest commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and your neighbour as yourself, the second one. And now Jesus is going to do that, And he's going to do that so that we may do just that. If we're not interested in love, we can let Jesus pass by without a thought. But if love is the way to live, and that's what we want, we're going to need to know what happens to Jesus on the cross. So, third, the cross shows that love is not deserved. These are commonplace things, but they're simply a summary of the the, the verses that bring together love and the cross. The cross shows that love's not deserved. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Righteous people don't need his help. 
He's the friend of sinners. And Paul helps us to think about this in Romans 5. So this is a little Romans 5 escapade that we're going on now. And um, if you want to have that open, it's fine. Uh, where he says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he used three uh, adjectives about or just descriptions of us here. Um, he says, um, we are weak. And, you know, you could say a lot about it. You could say uh, about one another, he, he's an impatient person or he's a... He's a Whatever, but what if you say he's hopeless? What if you say he's just weak? You know, and uh, some actually believe that it's not our, our the bad things that we do so much; it's just our weakness that's our problem. We we just not got the the mobility to actually get into life, like like a person who's looking for friends instead of being one. We just sort of think that, you know, that's normal now to look for friends. Well, what about being one? He that has friends, this is a verse that was with me since teenage, and I, I hope it's guided me somewhat. He that has friends must show himself friendly. Every time I think, about, I haven't got many friends, well, what about that? But you see, that's not a, that's a call to action, that's not a call to complaint. Um, so weak, just, just the incapacity to be a real human being is a terrible thing, isn't it? And uh, that's, we're not uh, failing for, for lack of niceness in the West, but we are failing for lack of strength. Isn't that true? So we are weak. That's about as low as you can get, I reckon, without the power. And so I think there's only once I've met a person um, who I've seen an, a picture of utter hopelessness. I was helping to help to work down at uh, our Westcare work at one stage. Um, for six months I was helping at Westcare, which is our the Baptist work for people in need. Uh, and there came in a person who smelt like he hadn't been to the toilet, didn't get there in time. I asked him if he'd like me to help him have a shower. He said, no thanks. He was dead within a matter of weeks. And I thought, there's a person who's lost all hope. That's terrible, isn't it? To lose the power to be human is awful. And then secondly, Paul says we're ungodly. We coast around as though the world doesn't need a creator, lest alone a saviour. I think if you're wanting to show that people are sinners, how does Paul show that people are sinners? He says they didn't want to have God in their thinking. You don't have to prove that people are liars. You don't have to prove people, that people have stolen stuff from the government. You, you just say, do you, do you love God? And if people don't want to have God and they're thinking God gives them up to do all the other nasty stuff. The real problem is not wanting to have God in our thinking. What about being ungodly? How low can you get? And then we are sinners, we just don't get it and constantly miss, so the word of uh, hamartia, which is the word for sin, is to actually miss the mark. It's like shooting an arrow and missing all the time. Very frustrating, <laughs> particularly trying to get a nail into a piece of wood and miss all the time. It hurts. 
Or we're sinners, we just don't get it. We're constantly missing what we're supposed to do. Like I've illustrated with the matter of friendship. Well, that's what Paul tells us about it, but what he tells us some more. That's where we are. That's where we are. Let's say it again. That's where we are when Jesus dies for us. He is not attracted to us. He loves us, which means he is attracted so that he can help us, I guess. And um, God is saying, look at me. What kind of God am I? I think it's a fantastic... We just have this word, God commends his love to us, and we just say, oh, it's another verse to learn. What does it mean for God to commend his love to us? He's actually saying, look at, look at it. I mean, stop for a while. Have a look at this. What's going on? Here you are, and this is what you like, and here's what I've done. Now, what does that actually mean? He's, he's commending it to us. He's actually recommending it to us. He's saying, have a look at this. Um... And um, and uh, where was it? That's where we are when Christ dies for us. He commends His love. So Jesus gets closer to us. This is just a little funny way I have of saying this, but I don't know how else to put it. Jesus gets closer to us than we can get to ourselves. I say that simply because I don't know that I could ever describe my sin like Jesus could. I'm sure I don't even feel it. But if Jesus is a purer eyes than to behold iniquity and he looks at me, what, what, what's, what's going on inside of his head? Um, and, um, but here, so I'm not, I'm not willing to face the facts about myself, but Jesus is. That's what I mean by he gets closer to us. And I'm not necessarily willing to do all the things to change myself, but Jesus does precisely what is needed to change everything. That's what I mean. I think it's a fair statement that Jesus gets closer to us than we can get to ourselves. The thought of us being wrong, polluted, unlovely and arrogant doesn't fit easily into our thinking. But Jesus sees all of this and he still says, I want to be with you and I'll wear what you are and I'll suffer what you deserve. And Jesus says, I'll give you all that I am so that you can be pure before my Father and before your Father. Your Father so that you may know that the love with which I have been loved, you are loved. We are accepted in the beloved, capital B, beloved. Jesus is the beloved son and God looks at you and me in Christ and says, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. That what's mean in Ephesians 1 verse 5, to be accepted in the beloved and then fourthly, the cross destroys love's enemy, which is fear. Here we got right to the core of the, the hub, if you like, or the action point, if you can put it that way. It might be the spokes, I don't know. You can work that one out. Uh, the cross destroys love's enemy, which is fear. Uh, what kills love is not busyness. I didn't have time, you know, I was impatient with my kids because you know, I'm at work, etc, etc, etc. What kills love is not busyness or difficult people. I mean, if you knew my wife, or if you knew my husband, if you knew... <laughs> That's not the reason. What kills love is not busyness or difficult people, it's threat and shame. That's not a psychological conclusion, it's a conclusion based on the passage of scripture we've got before us, which is 1 John 4. I've moved now from Romans to 1 John. See how I'm picking up the various key passages on the cross and love? And we've moved over to 1 John. 
Um, and uh, I'm going to read a little bit of that for us. Chapter 4 and verses 7 to 12. I won't read all of that. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. See, he just says, God's the centre. Haven't got God? You haven't got the real love. You might do loving things, but you haven't got what he's talking about. You know, you can define love and say, of course, people love, etc. And I'm happy with that because I know a lot of loving people and I'm very grateful for them, frankly. I've been benefited by a lot of non-Christian people who love me. It's great, isn't it? So that's not a problem, but we're not talking about what the Bible's talking about when it comes to love. Um, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We have to look at what that means in a minute. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit and so forth. And then verse 17, by this love is perfected, so he's filling out verse 12, by this love is perfected with us so that, not necessarily in us here, but perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. You and I are going to have confidence for the day of judgment. Where's it come from? Because I've been a loving person? Not really. Uh, but God's love is comes to its goal. Isn't this amazing? Can you believe this? God's love. I mean, he knows about love. And it comes to its goal in us. This is astonishing. I mean, the cross gets stuff done. It doesn't lecture us about how we should be kind to each other. It tells us to be kind to each other, but it's got some basis for saying so. Because God's love comes to its goal in us. And then when it comes to us is verse 19. We love because he first loved us. You've got to get the first bit to have the second bit. Well, let's, that's the passage. Let's just look at it. What kills love? You see, it's because of that passage, not because I'm a psychologist. Uh, it's because of that passage that I say that what kills love is not busyness or difficult people, it's threat and shame. Jesus loves us and is sent to be the propitiation. And we t- take that to mean not just expiation, that means getting rid of the sin so God can feel good about us again, but actually getting rid of the wrath that God has against us. Uh, And that can be fairly clearly indicated. Uh, Some words, it doesn't even make sense unless you follow that line of thinking. Uh, God loves us and is sent to be a propitiation. He averts that he, he stands there and says, let the wrath fall on me so it won't fall on them. That's the precise meaning of propitiation. He needs to turn the wrath away from us by bearing it himself. We've noted that there's something built into us that wants to make love our project. But love is of God. Here's where it comes from and why it works. Because Jesus so comprehensively, so comprehensively, it is finished. so comprehensively endures God's wrath, there is no fear of it touching us. The same arguments made in Romans 5.12. If God is now reconciled us to himself, there's no chance you'll ever experience God's wrath. We no longer need to fear meeting God. 
This fear, he says, he argues this fear has to do uh, with torment. And it's torment that stops love. And if we could get that point, we would understand people a lot better. We wouldn't just get frustrated with them because they don't love. We would understand that they're in torment. Can you see? We need to see through. Love has to perceive. It has to understand what's going on underneath the surface so that it can touch people. Uh, Love and fear don't belong together because perfect love casts out fear. But if fear is gone, love can thrive. That is love for God. That is your and my love for God and your and my love for one another can thrive not because we're loving people, but because the love of God is reaching its goal in us. John explains this by saying, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. What an interesting statement. I don't know if you've ever puzzled to think what it might mean. Um, He says, As Jesus is, so are we in this world. In other words, Jesus is in heaven. And we're on earth. But we are as his. We're not where he is, but we are as he is. So we have to ask, how is Jesus? Not how he's getting on, but where is is he actually? Because that's where we are. If We need to know where he is. And the sequence of this is important, so I've spelled it out. There's a time when Jesus is in torment on his cross. I I think it's a fair word. Torment has to do with the wrath of God against sin. That's its Old Testament connotation. And, um, And Jesus is bearing sin on the cross, so it's right to say that he has torment. That's the word that's used by 1 John. He could not say Father as he usually did. It's quite something, isn't it? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he announces that his work's finished and he entrusts his spirit, notice, to the Father. Isn't that interesting? Because what he's done is finished, he says Father now instead of God. Now, you could argue that that's pressing the point, but I think there's, knowing what we know, it's a fair assumption that there's something that's happened and that it's finished. And because of that, Jesus can commend his spirit to the Father. And in doing that, he can commend your spirit to the Father too. Wrath is gone. Love is born. There we are. God raises him from the dead to his side to administer the kingdom. His torment is over. And this is how he is now. And it's how we are now. Isn't that beautiful? So that all the affection and pride and trust that God has in his son so as to cause him to administer all things, uh, God uh, entrusts to us. That is, God, God, I'm sorry, God actually has towards us love and uh, confidence And if you like, trust. I don't think he actually trusts us to administer the kingdom. Uh, The Lord builds his church, not us. (laughs) So he doesn't entrust the management of it to him. But can you see he trusts us as fellow servants in the kingdom? We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Why would he place us there? 
not to twiddle our thumbs and admire the view. Why is Christ at the right hand of the Father? To do a job. Right? Administer the kingdom. Why are we placed next to Christ? Because we're fellow servants with Christ in the kingdom. Quite amazing, isn't it? Our torment is over. Love has begun. Christ abides in us and we are made perfect. Notice that. It is a work that somebody else does because it's in the passive. We are made. It's not we make it perfect. We are made perfect. That's a passive. We are made perfect in love by what God has done. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that we are perfect in love, um, but about God's love being perfected or coming to its goal in us. Our love begins to be talked about in verse 19. We love because, this is where he starts talking about us, we love because he first loved us. So you have to let the first bit be about God where it is so as to get the, the full the full Monty, do you know what I mean? You're not going to, you're not going to be able to fight a war on an empty stomach. <laughs> and you're not going to be able to be a lover of other people, uh, if you don't have the full gospel of a Christ on a cross who says, Grant, it's finished. Come on in. So God is now confident that this work will bear the fruit and lead us to love. Now, fifthly, just to, really, this is just a gathering together all of it, so I couldn't fit into the rest of the study. But as I said, I tried to gather the various references to love and the cross in the scriptures, and here they are. Uh, to see the cross, uh, the, the cross creates something entirely new, which is based on 2 Corinthians 5. Everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old, I mean, this is just so, so off the planet, right? It's in the planet, you know, but it's come from somewhere else. And we've really got to get used to that. I mean, where did everything come from anyway? There was one thing that, um, you know, um, what was the name of the show? Um, Played by Julie Andrews. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever did. And then she gets it all wrong and says, somewhere in my childhood I must have done something good. (laughs) It's when she marries the the, the, the tall, dark and handsome. Um, But... um, Sound of music, sorry. Um, but that line, nothing comes from nothing. That's good, isn't it? Nothing ever did. And so if we love, it's come from somewhere. It's come, and it's coming from somewhere. It's not something we sustain. It's something that's coming from somewhere. To see the cross as God's revelation and gift of love is to be a new person. Love is not strange to us. Now, when these things first came to me, I wrote to Chris because I was away on a mission at the time. And I said, you know, it's like we're walking on a razor blade and you can tip off easy enough. Well, be prepared to walk on a razor blade. Walking with God, where you know that God is the source of love, is a straight track. It's got to be God all the time. And never just devolve back to yourself. Just keep on the narrow way of knowing where it all comes from. See the cross is God's revelation, God's gift to be a new person. Love is not strange to us now. One man dies for all. So that's the end of all we have been. What happens from now on is all made by God. Life comes to us and here I've gathered the 
very famous verse, Romans 8, 38. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are according to, according to his purpose. He who did not spare his own son, shall he not with him freely give us all things? That's the verse. Life comes to us and sometimes at us with many difficulties. But the cross is our assurance that nothing ever happens around us or to us that will separate us from God's love. Our Father and our God, to be standing as we do in all the simplicity and the muckiness of our own humanity, but to be able to look up and to know that we've been purified by the blood of Christ, to know that we are your beloved, is a thing most wonderful and we are unworthy to say it and yet, Father, you want us not only to say it, you want us to cherish it. You want us to rely on it. Uh, we want, you want us to rely upon you and learn to live in this way where our love is always feeding into us uh, from above. So, Father, teach us to live this way and we ask these things not only for our sakes, Uh, But we ask it, Father, for those whom we love around us and would love to know these things too. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.